Acts chapter 2, which is where we will be today. And I want to talk to you about uh, one of the more controversial subjects uh, in Christianity today and in churches today. Uh, it's unfortunate, but a lot of controversy and uh, a lot of uh, misunderstanding has been placed around this subject of the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit works and how He moves. And it's unfortunate because uh, it is the power of God. And if Satan wants to deceive us, I would think that this would be one of the areas that he would want to deceive us. So I don't think it's any coincidence uh, that there's so much controversy around the third person of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And today I want to give you some background. I want to give a, a little bit of what we call in seminary pneumatology, some theology behind who the Holy Spirit is. And I want to invite you to do something. I want to invite you to uh, attempt to be open-minded and let go of some of the borders and the boundaries that maybe that you have around the Holy Spirit and how He's supposed to work and how He can work because we're talking about God. We're talking about the Spirit of the living God of the universe. And to say that he has to fit into our paradigms, the way that we think he's supposed to act, our interpretation, our understand, is really a ludicrous statement. He is so much bigger. He is so much above and beyond what we could ever hope or imagine or think or process. So I hope today that regardless of how you were taught as a child or how you have understood what the Holy Spirit can do and what He can't do, that you would open up your minds and you would hear Scripture and you would see how God has revealed Himself. Now, I want to give you three positions. We've mentioned this before, uh, and I want to give you the extremes of these positions. I want to uh, just coin to go ahead and, and explain that and, and give you that disclaimer right up front. But there are three positions when it comes to the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, particular spiritual gifts, but really how the Spirit, the Holy Spirit works today. And the first one's called uh, cessationism. And people who take this position are called cessationists and what they believe. And again, there are varying degrees of people who call themselves cessationists. Uh, I could, we could get into detail, but we want. But the hard line, the bottom line is people who believe that after the last apostle died, when the Bible was completed, that that was the end of the gifts of the Spirit. When we see them in the New Testament, they were for the purpose of starting the church and for manifesting the Spirit. And so at the conclusion, when the last apostle died, those uh, certainly the miraculous, <clears throat> some sensationists would even go as far as to say all the gifts have ceased. Now, the offices may still operate, and uh, through the power of prayer, the Spirit of God works, but the gifts of the Spirit and the working of the Spirit in that manner ceased. Okay? So those are called cessationists. Um, and then there are what we would call continuationists. And this, by the way, this would be my position, that the Spirit of God is still alive and well today and that the Spirit of God can uh, manifest Himself in any way He chooses. Uh, he can do it just like He did it in the New Testament. He could do it in, in a new form. But the Spirit of God continues to work and move for the purpose of edifying the church and ultimately for the glory of God. So He glorifies Himself. Is he dependent upon the offices or the gifts? Not in any manner, but he uses it to glorify himself. And he does that scripturally, uh, under scriptural guidance, but that he is alive and well today and still can perform any act, can gift in any manner that he chooses. 
And then there are those who, would, who are sensationalists. Now, I recognize no one calls himself a sensationalist. No one goes, hey, I'm a sensationalist, but I needed a word that ended with ist, okay? <clears throat> so, but, but nevertheless, this third position would be people who say, you know what? Upon your salvation, the Holy Spirit will manifest itself through speaking in tongues or prophesying. It will be a sign and a picture. If you're truly saved, if you've truly received Christ, it will manifest itself in that manner through one of the gifts, i.e. speaking in tongues or prophecy. That's how you'll know that you're truly saved. And I would label that a sensationalist because what you're asking is for the sensation of seeing something that proves that you've truly received Christ. Okay. Now, again, I admit those are two extremes uh, in those positions. Uh, But for our purposes today, I want you to understand that because we read and we will filter Scripture and we will filter the Holy Spirit through the lens by which we understand those positions and how we think He's supposed to operate. Uh, Now, with that said, I want us to look in our Bibles, and you won't have time to get all of these, but uh, we also have something called Version that you can go on your phone at any time. This is also going to be online uh, probably by tomorrow evening. And so these things will be there, and you can can see them if you miss these scriptures. But I want to go through some scriptures very briefly with you that talk about the Holy Spirit. And this is by no means an exhaustive list. This is just a few. In Ezekiel chapter 36, this is in the Old Testament, Ezekiel prophesying about what would come in verse 26 and 27 said, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you that I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us in Ephesians that we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has sealed our salvation. It's uh, been hermetically sealed, and we are a child of God, and the promise of the, the Holy Spirit has come upon us. And do not get drunk with wine, Ephesians 5.18. For this is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So we see right there that although we are given the Holy Spirit when we are saved uh, and we experience salvation, the Bible also says, Paul also says, be filled with the Spirit. Now, why do we need to be filled with the Spirit? Well, one reason we need to be filled with the Spirit is because we leak, okay? And so there is a constant process of the Spirit of God filling us as we seek the heart of God, as we pray, and as we read Scripture, and as we devote our lives to Him. As we continue on, we see uh, the Holy Spirit in Titus chapter 3, verse 5 through 6. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That word regeneration, one of the functions of the Holy Spirit is He regenerates us. It's a big word for the rebirth process. Remember in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus came before Jesus and he said, what do I have to do to be saved? He said, you must be born again. You must be regenerated. You must be born spiritually. And so that's the regeneration process. We have been changed and transformed and regenerated as He pours out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. John chapter 14, verse 15 through 17. Jesus speaking here, he said, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper 
to be with you forever. This is what we call the paraclete. The Greek word is parakletos. It uh, means comforter, helper, one who comes alongside and guides. And Jesus makes this reference to the Holy Spirit, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells within you and will be in you. For he dwells with you and will be in you. John chapter 4, 14, verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you. So the Holy Spirit teaches us things and brings to remembrance all the things that I have said. Romans chapter 5, verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Romans 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit... If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept things of the Spirit of God, for, the folly, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Uh, one of the reasons that we should always resist from getting angry when people who don't know Christ take different positions is because the Spirit of God, when you accepted Christ, the Holy Spirit came in you and He began to regenerate. He begins to teach and He begins to renew and to transform you. And so we shouldn't be surprised or angry when other people just can't see it. They can't experience, they can't understand it. Well, who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit, as we said earlier, is the third person of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Dr. Dan Wallace, uh, one of the preeminent scholars of our day in Greek, uh, is a professor of Greek New Testament at Dallas Theological Seminary. He said one of the great tragedies for us today, for evangelicals, is that we've made the Trinity the Father, the Son, and the Holy Scriptures. Now, the Bible is of eminence importance. It is very important, and it's the way that God speaks to us, but the Bible is not God. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person just like the Father, just like the Son. He's co-equal with the Father and with the Son. And by the way, uh, in Trek, that's one of, and if you take our doctrines class, this is something that you can learn a lot more about in our Trek classes. And what are the names of the Holy Spirit? Uh, the names of the Holy Spirit, well, you know, in the Old Testament, uh, there's a term called Rahak. Okay, and it means breath. It means the life that's in you. And uh, it's Rahakadim, which means uh, the Holy One, the Spirit of the Holy One. Okay, and we see it referred to in multiple places. Uh, in the New Testament, we see the names of the Holy Spirit. God, Lord, Spirit, Spirit of God, Spirit of Truth, Eternal Spirit. These are all terms. These are all names of, that are used for the Holy Spirit. Now, there are symbols that we see. The Spirit uh, will come in symbolic nature sometimes. And we see fire is probably the most prevalent. And wind, water is used. The dove we saw in Matthew chapter 3 when Jesus was baptized and the Holy Spirit descended upon him like, like a dove. Oil or the anointing and the seal that we talked about earlier. The Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, he, was, he acted as an instrument of divine action in nature and individuals. 
And he empowered the Old Testament prophets to speak and to do miracles. And we see in uh, Ezekiel and in Joel chapter 2 that, he's, that the Bible says that there will be a future outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now, I told you earlier that my position is a continuous, that I'm, I, I, I would use this term, that I'm open but cautious in regards to the working of the Holy Spirit. And I say cautious because the Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 3 uh, that you should test the spirits, that there are multiple spirits out there. And some there are false spirits that will try to manifest themselves and deceive people. We see in 1 Corinthians, uh, much of that book was written to Paul. Paul writes because of the ne- not just the neglect, but the abuse of spiritual gifts. But the Holy Spirit is about regenerating, as we talked about a while ago, about sanctifying, making us holy, purifying us, and maturing us. And he also authors scripture. He reveals, he teaches, he intercedes, he speaks, he convicts, he guides, he calls, he empowers, he anoints for service, he provides gifts, he indwells believers, and he intercedes for us. Now, as we talk about the Holy Spirit, um, I'm going to use a word because there has been so much divisive language, um, you know, we see that word baptism of the Holy Spirit, and 10 people look at it 10 different ways. Some people get queasy and they, they get scared of it. But what does that word baptism mean? It means to be immersed. Matter of fact, if you went back to Luke's chapter 24, Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verse 49, he said, Look, behold, I'm sending the promise of the Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So literally what baptism means, to be clothed in power. Uh, you can use the word anointed if you want to use that. It's another word that, unfortunately, people have used in different manners. But the Holy Spirit comes upon them, as we'll read here in just a moment in Acts chapter 2, in a unique and special way. Now, the, the word that I like the most is called effusion. This is what Charles Finney called it. This is what A.W. Tozer calls it. D.A. Carson, who's a preeminent scholar at uh, Trinity Evangelical, uh, Tim Keller. It, it, it's a word that means clothing in power. The Holy Spirit comes upon you in a special way and clothes you and empowers you. You could use the word and anoints if you want to use that word. But again, I know that breaks some of people's paradigms. But what I'm trying to suggest to you is, yes, the Holy Spirit comes to us when we're saved and we receive Christ. But the Holy Spirit also longs to completely possess and control us. And sometimes He will come upon us in a special and unique way for the glorification of God. All right? I know that's not what some of us have been taught and have heard. uh, But again, I'm inviting you to consider taking down the boundaries, uh, not taking the cessationist position that, hey, this is the box God has to work in. This is the way it has to work. Uh, I think if we stop and just think about it for a moment, we would say, yeah, that's probably not a good idea. I probably shouldn't tell God this is the way you have to move and this is the way you have to work for the future. And this is the way I have to understand you. Now, with that understanding... Let's, uh, let, let me give you an example real quick, though, before I go any further than this. And let me tell you an example of what I'm talking about. When I was, uh, when I was younger, I accepted Christ, and I was baptized, and I, I believed that I accepted Christ. I believed the power of the Holy Spirit came upon me and, uh, and regenerated me at that time. And uh, I was living what I thought was a decent Christian life. Uh, I was going to church. 
I would say my prayers. I think I even read a little devotional each night. And, uh, and, that, and I tried not to cuss real bad. And so that was some good Christianity right there, man. And uh, so that's what I was doing. I was just going along, and that's the way I lived. And then my senior year in high school, I went to work at a, a camp, an RA camp. Some of you may remember that. And it was a boys' mission, Baptist mission camp. And I went to work there, and I don't even know how I got hired. Uh, my dad's, one of his best friends was a pastor, and he said, your son ought to go do this. Next thing I know, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving for 10 weeks to go to this camp and, uh, and work with these boys. And when I get there, everybody else is a college student, and there's one or two seminary students. And uh, one of the seminary students does music, and the other one preaches, and he speaks. And, and when I got around those guys, I realized, man, my faith is very immature. I, there's not much substance about me. I have adopted a culture uh, more than I've adopted a faith, so to speak. And God began to convict me, and, and they didn't, no one told me anything specific, but just being around them guy, those guys as I heard them pray, and, and I started really praying, and I started really investigating Scripture and reading Scripture, and I began to mature, and I began to grow. And then uh, about week eight, it was almost week eight or nine, almost the end of the camp, and we were out playing around, and the guy who was pastoring, uh, he fell as we were running around with the kids, and he broke his leg. And it was a bad break. Like, they had to come get the ambulance and take him away. And the director of the camp came up, and he gathered us all together, and he said, Hey, guys, we've got a service here in a little while, and we're going to need somebody to preach. Who, who can do that? And I have no idea what was going on, what I was thinking, but for some reason, I raised my hand. <laughs> and I was the least qualified of all those guys. I'm, I'm a flipping high school student, okay? And I got my hand up, and I go, I'll, I'll do it. And uh, they go, he goes, all right, well, get yourself ready, because you got to preach, and there's 150 boys there. And so I'm doing that, and I'm walking back, and I'm going, get myself ready. I don't even know what to do. I've never spoken before. I've never, and I'm certain I've never taught any Bible. I'm not like, I'm, I've been a snotty-nosed kid all my life. I'm the guy who, well, I'm not going to tell you what I used to do, but, but nevertheless... I didn't even pay attention in Sunday school, and now I'm supposed to be preaching. And, I, I, and let me tell you, going into ministry was the furthest thing from my mind at this point, okay? I wasn't thinking about that at all. But all of a sudden, I am supposed to preach. And I remember going and just getting on my knees and praying, not because I was so holy, because I was so scared. And I said, God, what have I done? What am I supposed to do? I think the only verse I really knew was John 3.16. I figured that wasn't going to take very long. And so... I began to pray and, and said, God, just help me. And, um, and I just felt the Spirit of God come upon me. And I, I went and I spoke. And I kid you not, I had no idea what I was going to say, but God just spoke to me. I recalled scriptures that I didn't even know that I knew. And God just came down in a special way. And there were 14, 15 boys that accepted Christ that night. And uh, then I spoke the next couple of nights. And it was just amazing every night that would happen. And I literally did not know what I was doing. And, it, and it, uh, it was a manifestation of the Spirit. It was the Spirit of God flowing. And I can tell you this, too. It, it changed me. And it was six months later that I decided to go in uh, to some kind of part-time ministry. Uh, again, I grew up in a church with about 75, so um, I, I wasn't really thinking big or thinking outside the box other than uh, maybe I'll take kids on bowling trips or something. I, I don't know what I was thinking at that point. And, uh, but it was a time that forever changed me. It was, a, it was a time that the Spirit came upon me in a special way and manifest Himself in a way that I could not have done on my own. 
And that's the power of the Holy Spirit. And we see in Acts chapter 2 this spirit coming. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. They were all in this it, Pentecost, and it's unique. I don't think God picked Pentecost uh, by accident, by the way. The word means 50, and many Jewish scholars believe that it was 50 days from the time of Passover that the Jews observed Passover in Egypt to the day that Moses walked up to the mountain to receive the word of God. So many Jews believe that. Now, the first term that was used for Pentecost, it wasn't originally called Pentecost. The first term it was used, it was just 50 days, was called First Fruits, or the Feast of First Fruits. That's the way it was first used. I don't think that's by accident at all either. What was first fruits? Well, in an agrarian society, uh, people would plant their crops, and the first thing that would come up, the first fruits, the first vegetation that would come up, they would offering, they would offer that as an offering back to God, as a picture of Him being the provider, the picture of the first fruits, and so it would be a taste of what was to come, a foreshadowing of what was to come. It was a thank you in advance, thank you God for what you are providing. And now we see the Spirit of God, as prophesied in the book of Joel, as prophesied in the book of Ezekiel, coming on Pentecost. And here's a foretaste. Here's a taste of what is to come, of the glory of God, of the Spirit of God. I personally believe it's a foretaste of ultimate glory which is to be in the presence of God. Just like when Moses said, God, I want to experience your spirit. I want to see your glory. And God had to put him in the cleft of a mountain. And as he passed by, he caught a taste, a glimpse. And here we are at Pentecost, at first fruits, at the first of the harvest. And, a, and the poor, spirit of God is poured out a foretaste of what we would ultimately experience for eternity. And he said, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Remember, we talked about how that symbol of wind and fire. If you'll remember, if you go back and read in Exodus, as Moses went up Mount Sinai, what did he experience? He experienced the quake and the wind and the fire as the manifestation, as the symbols and the picture of God and the, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. And divided tongues... Uh, as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in their own language and they were amazed and astonished and saying, are these, not all, uh, are these men not Galileans? How is it that we hear each of them in his own native language? Now, I don't know if we have that slide that we can show. Here we are. <clears throat> we know that, matter of fact, in purpose of time, we're not going to read through this passage, but I wanted to just let you visually see it. All of these cultures, all of these people groups, these languages are represented here in this text. And you see them from all these different areas. And each one will hear in their own language. Just what you saw a little ago in the film, uh, the Bible. Uh, you see people from Egypt. You see people from Rome, from Arabia. And they're hearing in their native tongue, what? The gospel. They're hearing the gospel each in their native tongue. If you think about it, back in Genesis 10 11, remember Babel when God uh, basically put, put in the placement other languages as he disrupted uh, their pride and their egos. Now you see God bringing back together the reordering of all languages where they'll all hear it in their native tongue. 
You know, if you were a Muslim, you would be given a copy of the Quran, and you might be given a copy of the Quran in English, but a good Muslim would say that's not actually the Quran. And the reason he would say that's not the Quran is because the only valid translation of the only word of Allah is Arabic. It is Allah's native language. It is his language. It is the holy language. And the Quran is only really the Quran if it's given and spoken and read in Arabic. But we see just the opposite here with Christ. Every language. So when you read your Bible in English, it's the Bible. If it's read in Swahili, it's the Word of God. If it's read in Mandarin, it's the Word of God. In Spanish, uh, in, in Korean, whatever your language might be, it is the Word of God. It is the power of God being transmitted. So God doesn't have a holy language. If it was, we'd all have to learn Hebrew, okay? But that's not what he did. They spoke in his language. Everyone understood it in their own language. And they were amazed and perplexed because what? These were Galileans. And they don't speak my language, but I'm hearing the gospel. The Bible says in verse 12, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking him and said, They're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing up with eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed him, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let it be known. And let me give you ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. They're hearing this happen, and some people are going, what's, what's this going on? He's, he's making this pronouncement about who Jesus is, and I'm hearing it in my own language. And, and said, I'm hearing it in my language. And then others said, you know what? They're drunk. And Peter says, wait, they're not drunk. We're not drunk. It's only the third hour. It's only 9 a.m. Most people don't get drunk at 9 a.m. And let me tell you, there's even a bigger reason that we know they weren't drunk, because the fast was over. They've been fasting. The fast is over at noon. They've been fasting before Pentecostal, and at noon, the fast would be over. So you wouldn't break a fast. You wouldn't get drunk three hours uh, before your fast was over, okay? So that's not logical at all. By the way, it's interesting. We read earlier in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verse 18, that Paul said, Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. It's interesting he uses that word wine. Think about it, what happens. I know none of you have ever been drunk, but you probably, probably had a friend at college or something or knew somebody one time that got drunk. And, um, you know, if you ask any, any uh, medical, any, any doctor, anybody that knows anything about medicine, they can tell you that alcohol is, is a depressant, okay? We like to think that it's uh, an upper or something, but it's actually a depressant. And what it does is it depresses basically your brain cells to where it just kind of deadens you. And here's the truth, it just kind of makes you stupid, okay? You get drunk and you're stupid. You know, I remember my friend John Burge, when I was a junior in high school, um, we, I, we were all meeting up at McDonald's, because that's what you do when you're cool. You go to McDonald's each night uh, on Friday and Saturday night. And we got there, and John was drunk. And John's crazy, and he's talking all crazy. And back then, McDonald's uh, allowed smoking, so there was these little cigarette um, ashtrays. And John was flipping those around, and he was trying to throw them across. And uh, we lived next to a military base, Fort Pope. And there were a couple of big soldiers there, and he threw that thing, and it hit one of these soldiers, and it was the biggest guy in McDonald's. I mean, he was just built tough. I mean, he's tall and, and just bowed up. And that thing hit him in the head. And he goes, hey, who threw that? John's drunk. He didn't know any better. Drunk. John weighs about 140 pounds. He goes, I did. What you going to do about it? And John walks over to him. Why? Because he's drunk. Not because he's tough. Not because he's got confidence. Because he's drunk and he's stupid. 
Okay? So he goes up stupid, and he takes a swing at this guy who's three times his size, and we finally have to convince the guy that he's a minor, and hey, we'd be in big trouble. You know, you're, you're probably 21, he's 17, 16, let me get my friend out of here. But that's a picture. You don't know reality. You lack a perception of true reality. Being filled with the Spirit is that you see ultimate reality. God has given you a taste of ultimate reality of the spirit world. And that's why Paul says, be filled with the spirit, that you will see and spiritually discern things that you wouldn't be able to do in your own strength. That's the picture that's being given here. And Peter's saying, they're not drunk. They're seeing things that you can't see. They're experiencing the spirit of the living God. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And Peter goes straight to uh, prophecy. He goes straight to the word of God and he explains, he goes, let me explain it to you. He says, in the last days it shall be that God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens and signs on the earth below the blood and fire and the vapor of smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes and the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And we see this theme in Acts five or six, seven different times as, preach, as the preaching occurred. Here's the way it goes. There's an event, a manifestation of the Spirit. And then the, the preacher or the prophet or the disciple or the one who will speak will explain, this is what's happened. This is uh, in, in d- direct correlation to the prophecy that's been given. So he explains it. He goes to the mind and says, you know the word, you know the scriptures. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy. And then he shares the gospel, which is exactly what Peter does here. And then we see at the conclusion of this sermon, which by the way is the first sermon for the first church, he gives basically an invitation. He says, repent and be baptized in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So we see the explanation, we see the gospel, and then we see the call to receive, to repent, and to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit. So my friend, I want to invite you this morning to open your hearts. To open your hearts to what God could possibly do through you as you see needs, as you just say, Lord, I want to surrender myself. I want to be available, God. I want you to use me. I want to just open myself up as your vessel. I know that the Holy Spirit resides in me, but God, I want you to use me in a special way. I want to be open to that. I'm not afraid. I'm open and I'm ready, God. Here I am. Use me. Send me. Do whatever you desire. I believe I want to invite you to open up your heart in that manner. I want to conclude with this story I've shared uh, one time before, but Dr. Matthew Harding, who shared earlier, who's our discipleship minister, who has three doctorates, uh, tells a story of, he said, when I was in Honduras at one point, and I was on a mission trip, and I was preaching, and, and I was going from village to village, but I didn't speak Spanish, so I, I knew about 20, 25 words of Spanish was all I knew, but... Um, I had an interpreter, so it wasn't any big deal. Well, something happened to the interpreter, and, and he ended up leaving. And uh, they said, well, okay, you're going to need to speak here now 
at, at this little gathering of people. And he goes, but I don't, I don't know Spanish. And there was one person that spoke some broken English, but he said, I can't really translate from you. You're just going to have to do it. And he goes, I've got like a 25-word vocabulary of Spanish. I can't do this. But he couldn't even hardly explain that to him. So next thing he knows, he's up there. And he said, God, you're going to have to do this. Spirit, you're going to have to do this. And he preaches. And at the end of that time, he said about a dozen people accepted Christ. And I had no idea what I said. Had no idea what had happened. Matter of fact, that night we had to get back to where the, where the interpreter were, and I had one interpreter talk to the other interpreter, and he said, yeah, you did this great job. You, gave, you quoted scripture. You gave illustrations. It was, it was amazing. It's a picture of being open and allowing the Holy Spirit to come upon you and to use you. Why? Not for what you can get out of it, for what you can show, but for the glory of God. I believe that's the only reason the Holy Spirit manifests himself is for the glory of God of God. Would you be open to that today? Here's the way we're going to conclude our service. Uh, excuse me, this is our next step if you'd like to. Uh, you, we've got right up here today candles, and um, I'm going to invite you, if you're open, and I don't want you to feel any pressure to do this. If you're uncomfortable, say, I, hey, buddy, I, that's not me. I'm visiting. Uh, I'm not there. That's fine. Just stay seated. Do not feel the need to get up. But if you would symbolically uh, be willing, just as the Holy Spirit has symbolically used his fire, I want to invite you to come and just light a candle as an expression of, of your prayer and your prayer being, God, I'm open to you using me. As I go into this year, as we go into this new chapter of our church, I'm open. God, you may call me, you may lead me, you may show me a direction of something I'm totally uncomfortable with that's a need, I'm open. And if you want to symbolically come and light that candle as an expression of that prayer, I invite you to do that. And then when you're finished, you just go back to your seat. And then we'll have an offering in just a moment. But if God leads you to, I invite you to respond in that way. Let's take a moment just to pray and, and ask the Spirit of God to reveal to you. If you're ready to do that uh, at any time that you feel led to, then come and light a candle as an act of symbolism of your prayer of saying, God, I am open. Spirit, use me. Fall upon me. Anoint me. In the name of Jesus.